Welcome to Season 2 of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focus on the power of relationships and enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Pickell. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. We will consider how culture, class, family, child education, and other factors all influence relationship building. On this episode, we talk with Clay Cook, who is the John W. and Nancy E. Payton Faculty Fellow in Child and Adolescent Wellbeing at the University of Minnesota. Clay discusses the establish, maintain, and restore system of approaching intentional relationships with young people, and how something as simple as greeting students at the classroom door can have incredible effects on relationship building. This episode of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, I am super excited to have with me Clay Cook. Clay is currently the John W. and Nancy E. Payton Faculty Fellow in Child and Adolescent Wellbeing at the University of Minnesota, where he's also a professor and on the core faculty in the Institute of Translational Research and Children's Mental Health. So Clay, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, this is great. Thanks for having me. So, you know, one of the things I've done with uh, other researchers, not every time, but one of the things I've done with some of the other researchers as we just get started is um, before we talk about your, you know, research and your ideas around relationships and the state of kids today, I'm just interested a little bit in your personal story. What was your path to being somebody who's really doing uh, leading research on both interventions to strengthen relationships, children's mental health, and also, as we'll talk about, implementation science. What got you here today? You know, I think it was all about relationships that got me to where I am today. My dad uh, is uh, 50% Native American from the Osage tribe from Oklahoma. He struggled. He was a high school dropout. Some of those struggles in our family transferred into me struggling through school. I had a stint where I was in alternative education in high school due to some just choices I was making that weren't in my own best interest nor others around me. I played basketball. I grew up in a small rural community where sports was the number one thing. So I played football, basketball, baseball, and later uh, golf, but that kept me into school. And I had a, my alternative ed teacher was a teacher, Mr. Gogo. Mr. Gogo was what a name, Mr. Gogo. I didn't learn anything from Mr. Gogo, but one thing I learned was he cared about me and he was relentless in his support for me becoming a successful person. And so that kept me plugged into school. I played junior college basketball. I was able to play in, in Stockton, California, one of the most violent cities in the country, played basketball there, was able to then walk on and play at Cal State Fullerton. I was struggling while I was there. I was flunking out of college in my undergrad. And this is the person who I've done all kinds of gratitude things with because he had such an impact. My developmental psychology, I selected a major. I'm flunking out of school. And one day after class, he wanted to talk to me. And he basically called me a loser. But like in this supportive, challenging way, he's like, what the heck's going on with you? You have really good contributions. And I looked into stuff and you're not doing well. He's like, and he challenged me. He asked me, he was in charge of this. It's called the Fullerton Longitudinal Study. He asked me to be a part of his research lab. And it was, he and I, if you looked at us, you would say, these people are never going to get along. He's a small Jewish guy with a comb over, just like my background growing up on a farm and the way that, you know, we just, but he cared. And somehow he singled me out and gave me an opportunity. And that's all it took right there. And then that just transferred my motivation. And then research is me search on some level. And so as I got caught the research bug, I became a paraprofessional, middle school math teacher and a school psychologist. But I always had that interest in research. And I wanted to understand how do we increase kids access to the daily enriched experiences they need to be well, to engage fully in learning experiences and ultimately live happy, healthy, effective lives 
And so that type of work always comes back to the same thing. It is all about social connections. And we have how many decades of research to say that we should be doing this, but we still have a significant gap in translating that research into everyday practice, which has resulted in my interest around implementation science. Were you aware, at, like literally it sounds like there was literally at the moment, were you conscious of when that developmental psychology professor kind of really was gave you some tough love? Were you aware of the importance of it even in that moment or was it just subsequent to that as, as you got into his lab and you started doing things? Well, I was pretty close to, I was aware that something in me changed because I went from not being successful to all of a sudden having motivation and being engaged. I mean, I would barely show up to class. You know, I was on the verge of being kicked out of the university and I knew what I needed to do, but I wasn't doing. I was partying. I was socializing, but it took that. And I knew immediately, like it was like a catalyst moment because a lot of these things we think have to take time. And yes, we have certain supports that are a dose response, but sometimes there's just experiences that change. And it was a mindset shift for me that it happened pretty instantaneously, especially when I got into the lab and I, I felt like, wow, this is cool. Look at these people answering these types of questions. And it, that was it from a motivational standpoint. It's interesting in the work we do at Search Institute, there's, we do a lot of workshops and professional development for school staff, out of school time program staff, mentors, people who basically work with kids. And one of the things that I, having designed a lot of that content and then also facilitated it many times, I'm always aware of the tension between highlighting that experience you just had, the incredible life-changing impact of connection in the right way at one moment and then making it seem too easy and too light. Because it's very empowering to pr practitioners, especially working in challenging settings, to hear that like one small thing can change a life. And that is true. And we know it from you know, a growing body of research on all these psychosocial experiments where like one message produces different behavior that then results in different outcomes years later. But I also don't want to oversell the simplicity of it in a sense. And, you know, usually we just try and leave it there with that tension. But like, yes, you can believe and the science shows that those breakthrough moments happen. And it's probably the accumulation of experience over time. And then that developmental psychology prof got you at the right moment at the right time. So it's empowering, but I also don't want to like make it seem like magic. Oh, and all the relationships along the way that I could dig into from coaches and other people in my life that were there along the way that kept me in the game, so to speak, to allow that to happen. And what was the back end of that initial interaction with Alan Gottfried, my developmental psych professor, if there was nothing on the back end to continue to engage me in a relational wow. experience then that likely wouldn't have sustained. It would have been a fleeting kind of interaction that, you know, gave me a little boost, but ultimately I faded back to my baseline, which my baseline was, you know, not going anywhere fast. That's so interesting. So I want to start, one of my uh, favorite things that has emerged out of your research is the establish, maintain, restore, I don't know, process, I'm going to call it, as opposed to technique, but you can use whatever term is correct. But it's this really interesting resource that you and, and also other colleagues have created for um, basically cultivating really positive teacher-student relationships. So I guess the question is, first of all, what is Establish, Maintain, Re Restore? And then second, what have your studies of the process shown about its effectiveness? Yeah, we call it a system that introduces kind of common language around relationships. So people have shared language to talk about the phases of the relationship they're in with kids. It's also a system of supports that help people actually implement deliberately and intentional certain relational interactions with kids, particularly kids for whom don't have a strong sense of belonging and connection to school. And then it's also a system that helps provide a hub so teachers are able to access resources that are at their fingertips that give kind of concrete ideas about how they can establish relationships with kids. How do you maintain and keep those intact? And if you have a negative interaction, how do you actually repair and restore those relationships? My The work was inspired by working with educators across the country, and everybody believes. We do these belief surveys, and we ask educators if they believe in relationships. Virtually everybody says yes, but we saw kind of the you know knowing-doing gap or whatever you want to call it. People, when we tried to dig beneath the surface, they couldn't describe specific things they're doing. What they would do is describe 
characteristics that define a healthy relationships, but not anything they're doing with an intentionality in terms of their own behavior and interactions to be very purposeful and deliberate about going from not having a relationship to having one with a kid. What are they doing to maintain those and keep those healthy relationships intact? And what do you do if there is a conflict or a misunderstanding that's hurt the relationship? How do you repair those things? So we're like, wow, there's a big vacancy. I was at the University of Washington and worked with a guy or was influenced by a guy named John Gottman, who's the foremost marriage expert and relational expert. So what we did is take some of his ideas on kind of the phases to healthy relationships and adapt them to the school context. And that's how we built Establish, Maintain, Restore. As I know you know, it, it really has a lot in common with what we're trying to do at, at Search Institute around developmental relationships. When we started this work, I would look at the research literature and it would talk about things like attunement. And I would say, great, if you're a teacher, like I started my career, how do you do attunement? And so it, so in some ways, awkwardly, we've conceptualized relationships as a series of actions, even though relationships in some ways are not actions, they're just sort of feeling. But we've, we've conceptualized it as action in a way that I think has been helpful to uh, a number of folks in the same way that Establish, Maintain, Restore has been. And how about that second question? Like, what have you seen in the research? Because to your credit, I mean, it's tough to do like rigorous studies of things that are not really rigidly defined canned programs, which relationships are by definition not, but you've done some efficacy studies that I glanced at and want to have you tell listeners about. Yeah, we've done a few different randomized control trials at all the levels. So we have an elementary, middle school, and high school level. We currently have an Institute of Education Sciences project where we're looking at establishment and maintain restore as a dropout prevention strategy. As kids transition into the ninth grade and we have a randomized control trial, we also are, you know, doing other things to try to scale the impact and make it available as a free resource in there. You know, our findings are pretty clear. It works in terms of the kids who need it the most. And so from an equity standpoint, some kids are already feeling like a strong sense of belonging and we don't need to focus on them. EMR, we conceptualize as a triage and equity focus process. We begin with what's called an equity tree. We have people actually reflect on what we call low-hanging fruit, kids who they have strong relationships with kids, middle-of-the-tree kids who they put a little more effort, but they got them top-of-the-tree kids. They haven't yet established a relationship. Then they say, okay, is gender related to the position on the tree? Is uh, socioeconomic, race, ethnicity? And then the goal is to extend relationship ladders to the kids at the top. And those become what we call student-specific relationship action plans that teachers develop. So some of our work we've done has been very equity explicit to understand, you know, kids check our assumptions around relationships, make sure we're doing the fact finding to understand who kids are in terms of their identities and their values. And how do you align your interactions with kids So it's most engaging and appropriate. So we have different and we have what's called a a playbook that actually has equity levers in to consider when interacting with kids. So we're doing things in as culturally relevant and engaging way as possible. So that's our newest where we're really looking at equity relationships as central to the equity work. It's one to cultivate a mindset around equity and help people understand and have kind of the knowledge and belief. The other is relationally, how does this manifest? And so we're being intentional. We have some uh, randomized control trial where we're evaluating the effects to actually address disparities in things like student sense of belonging, which there are gaping disparities. A lot of the achievement gaps, we believe, are driven by relationship gaps. How often in practical terms, it's a fascinating device that you've created with the sort of the tree and the the audit. How often does a teacher through your process, like sit there and realize that the kids at the top of the tree, if I'm understanding the, the, the device correctly, with the ones who I'm not connected to, really do share a common demographic characteristic. They're of another racial culture background, they're of another gender, fill in the blank. And when that happens, what does the process do about it with that person? Yeah, so there's a lot of awareness, social awareness raising, like who has access to relationships with you and who doesn't? in terms of daily enriched experiences and what does it mean to be in a classroom where you don't have access to that healthy relationship. The goal is to then, if we have a structured uh, professional learning community process, so this lives in a PLC, a monthly PLC, that where we don't just connect people to collaborate around, we give uh, around relationships, we give them a protocol 
Every PLC ends with what we call student-specific relationship action plans, and that is designing plans for kids for whom we consider in vulnerable relationship states, meaning kids who you have not yet built a relationship or kids who are in that restorative phase of the relationship and you need to then plan out how are you going to reconnect with the kid to engage in a skillful interaction to repair that relationship. And then we give them kind of five different types of skillful communication strategies you can use to restore the relationship. And then we have a bunch of different established practices. If you're struggling to think about what you could do to interact to help cultivate a relationship, here are the strategies. Uh, One of the things I love about Establish, Maintain, Restore is that it includes restore, which is something that I think often gets overlooked. So this relationship has been, for one reason or another, damaged. Did you go into this uh, research with the idea that restore should be a part of it, or did that emerge through the work? Well, John, if you're a disciple of John Gottman, we've just, like, that's it. Like, you know, one thing to unhealthy relationships, people don't follow up after a negative interaction and make it good. And that's a very intentional process. It's different than restorative practices in schools where the goal is to have an alternative to discipline where we're helping hold kids accountable, but in a supportive way. This is where the adult takes ownership. Who goes first in the interaction to repair the adult-child relationship? The adult, the paid professional. And so it's really modeling what does it look like to make the situation right after kind of a maybe a really rough interaction, one in which, you know, words that hurt feelings were said, someone feels like they're not cared for anymore. And so that it was so apparent that that has that is an essential phase to a relationship that in order to bring it back to its previous healthy state. And that characterizes marriages, bosses to employees and uh, teacher student relationships. Yeah. So that's fascinating. So you started out of Gottman's work and other work, like from romantic relationships, you started with this idea that restoration of the relationship had to be part of the system. Super interesting. Well, since we've just been talking about sort of the restore part of the relationship, which happens, you know, at some point after the relationship has been underway, let's pivot to this really interesting, seemingly very micro work you've been doing around positive greetings at the door. A couple of years ago, I saw you did a study where you really take a look at with middle school kids how teachers greet kids at the door can have some really, I think, surprising implications for how they behave in class, you know, how engaged they are in learning, things like that. Tell us a little bit about the positive greetings at the door work that you've been doing. Yeah, that came from doing observational work in schools and seeing where teachers just are intuitively doing things and having an impact. It's probably one of the more misunderstood strategies because people simplify it. You just stand at the door and say hi to a kid and then poof, you get these effects when it's really is kind of a, there's multiple components that go into this to deliver it with fidelity. And so we started to say, how does that actually being at the door to welcome kids in and authentically interact as they transition in the environment serve as a catalyst for engagement regarding what happens next. And so there's certain things that an adult whose position there can do. One is really creating this kind of welcoming, dyadic interaction. So every kid knows you see them and care about them coming into that environment. What does that interaction look and sound like? You can do things that are called pre-correction. A lot of kids bring behavior from non-classroom settings that aren't necessarily consistent with how classrooms function. And pre-correction means get on the front end that, remind kids of the behaviors of success before they even transition in the environment. And many kids do, as well as understanding if someone's at the door, you have to have something ready for students to transition into, but make that high interest, student-driven And so those are the components. And if you had a negative interaction with a kid the previous day, perfect opportunity to restore before that you even get the class off to the start. So those are the really the four components and why we think each of those components combined to have something that's really a powerful technique unto itself. I believe every teacher on the planet should do it daily. Could you do it with older kids? You know, I know the study and I want you to tell me about like what the efficacy studies of the positive greetings at the door have shown, but they were with middle school kids, right? Like I'm thinking about my time teaching, you know, high school juniors. You're thinking those teachers should be doing it too? Those teachers, we have a, we currently have a trial with high school where we're not getting as big of effects, but we're getting effects in terms of one of the main outcomes we believe 
that is a byproduct of healthy relationships is engagement. You have an engaged human in their experiences. So we get boost from baseline to, you know, post when we randomly assign kids to get it or not get it. We get boosts up. It wasn't as dramatic, but we you get anywhere from like a 7 to 15% increase in academic engage time following that. The degree to which kids engage in their learning and you see dips, significant dips in things that are behaviors that run inconsistent with kind of classroom learning activity. How long does it take a, a teacher to learn to do positive greetings at the door? Yeah, we usually have a one-time training and then we have kind of coaching and then fidelity audits and feedback. So we look at it as a developmental process of around three months. Generally, from an implementation perspective, most people after training don't even start adopting the practice, whatever it is. Most people, even after like Mercedes-Benz version training, don't even adopt the practice. And then within the first month, many of the people adopt they drift away and stop doing it. It's kind of like your New Year's resolution. The question is, in schools, though, nothing you could say sustains until it's survived a summer. So you don't know until it's like survived an actual summer where people go, you know, unplug and have amnesia. You can't say any program or practice has sustained unless it's made it through an entire summer. And have you seen the positive greetings at the door? Make we it haven't summer? done that work where we've kind of followed it up after an entire summer to see what proportion of staff are doing it and continuing to do it in the way that it's likely to be effective and haven't drifted because it's called implementation drift. A lot of people who start doing it and reach kind of high fidelity often drift away from that fidelity and need recalibration experiences or else they drift. This is true of surgeons. This is true of educators, social workers. This is just behavior. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The other thing is, have you either looked at or my sort of back pocket hypothesis would be that in addition to the changes that the positive greetings at the door makes in the literal moment of greeting at the door, might it also shift the way the teacher actually leads and manages the class, provides instruction, the way they actually, because I'm sort of seeing these kids walking in sort of more for who they are as individuals, I'm maybe pulse checking their mood, you know, all that stuff that then could potentially shift the what happens during the rest of the class period. Yeah, I would love, I mean, that would be a fascinating kind of element, which we haven't done is more observationally see how it's changed their interactions, teachers interactions with students throughout the remainder of the time. We haven't done that. But my hypothesis, like you're saying, it would change. Teachers are going to just be more aware of maybe the emotional state of where their kids are. Kids who kind of didn't respond well to their initial interaction, they may want to follow up with. It just gives them information that's actionable information that they can infuse throughout the rest of the period. Yeah. And one of those, I mentioned earlier, the stuff that we do at Search Institute around professional development, I built out this case study that's built on a fascinating study that Valerie Purdy Greenaway and David Yeager and a bunch of other people did. And it was in child development. And it was this two messages in seventh grade, one basically transactional with homework being given back and one high expectations and belief. And it had these really immediate improvements in student effort. And then that actually produced for the African-American kids in the sample improvements the following year in discipline rates. And then most eye-opening five and a half years later in college enrollment rates. And of course, it's a very small sample size, but a a really striking finding. And I know that there's plans to be replicating that research. And so we do this interesting case study. And I ask people basically to form their own hypothesis about why might that two messages have had an impact. And everybody's mind goes pretty immediately to the shift in the kids, how it might have caused the kids to see themselves differently. And as a facilitator, I always have to, and every once in a while, you know, you get lucky, somebody brings it up in the room, but I always have to say, well, what about the teachers? Like, how could this message that these researchers manipulated on a post-it note have actually started to shift the teacher's perspectives of, in this, in that particular study, it's the African-American kids who had the gain as opposed to the white kids. So it's that bi-directional nature of it. I think it'd be fascinating to look at that at some point. We need more research that actually gets at that so we can see the actual mechanisms by which these types of relational strategies produce benefit. And it's not just a one-way street. This is where the adults are transforming how they interact along with how kids are experiencing being in that setting. It's it's the reciprocation between both of those. So I want to talk, because this conversation has verged toward it around your work on implementation science and even like precision education, which I know is something that you've thought 
about. But before we do that, one question that just comes to mind as we're talking, I'm, I'm assuming some of your work is getting attention and adoption under this sort of broad banner of social emotional learning. Certainly ours is at Search Institute. And in a lot of ways, that's good. I mean, as somebody who lived as an urban school district administrator, the journey of No Child Left Behind, where the pendulum went way too far over to the sort of all that matters is a testable body of knowledge in reading and math. Now we have this really pretty striking emphasis on, you know, SEL, and actually not just in schools, also in out of school time. But I was thinking the other day, you know, there's these fads that come and go. I mean, No Child Left Behind was a policy when I mentioned, but even like the Common Core was going to be the big thing. And then there have been a whole bunch of other things that were not so much policy shifts, but more sort of, you know, movement directions. As somebody doing research in that space, what do you think has to happen to not have SEL be sort of the fad of the moment that then fades. And we're sort of five years from now, we're like, oh, yeah, remember when everybody was going to do social emotional learning? And that didn't work. And now we're on to the next thing. Maybe I'm being too pessimistic there. But I think it's a positive trend broadly defined. And I've been trying to think, what do those of us who care about it need to do to not have it become the newest fad that's going to fade? Yeah, I think a lot about the same issue, because I do think there is a tendency for things that come will go. And if we're not really careful about this work, we're going to see a shift and all of a sudden it's going to fall out of favor again. The way I approach this work is to break it down. Once human beings are born, what do they need to be well and to develop and grow? And so that's experience. Human beings change as a result of experience. Okay, so let's start to define in schools, what are the enriched daily experiences kids need in order to develop and grow, to be well, to engage fully and develop and grow. We know there's relational experiences and these experiences aren't fads. What are fads are the named products that come and go. Like EMR, that could be a fad because there's gonna be probably a better product that comes and does it more efficiently and effectively or whatever it is. What isn't the trend or the fad is the fact that human beings need certain relational experiences and have to have access to those. We select effective practices to implement to create access to those daily enriched experiences. So things we know is kids need certain environmental experiences so they feel safe. They understand what the environment's expecting of them. It has predictability to it. It's proactive. It, it supports them on the front end to be successful versus reacts to once you've made a mistake and then tries to fix it. We know kids need certain types of relational experiences. And so what we try to say, these are the things, and they need instructional experiences to acquire competencies. Some of those are competencies in the area of academics. Some of those in social functioning and emotional functioning. And so that becomes curriculum selection and instruction. And then we also know some kids need access to experiences that go above and beyond the base because their needs dictate it. And we need to have access to early, timely intervention. So what we try to do is say those each of those batches of experiences are ingredients to a recipe. And these ingredients are never going to go out of importance. You can hop into a you know time machine and fast forward 100 years and you're going to get out. Are relationships still important? Are creating safe, predictable environments still important for, to, for people to be well, to engage fully? Are we still emphasizing the acquisition and use of certain competencies? So that's at least how I try to say these are not trends and help people's beliefs really wrap around. That's how I approach it. But I think without a deliberate attempt, you know, SEL is going to be a moniker that's going to you know, lose traction over time. So interesting. The other thing that's come up on this point in a couple of conversations that I've been a part of is in addition to, I think, what you're saying, which is we've got to remember that the particular package or even framework is not necessarily the core of what kids need. It's a way of implementing it. So don't become overly committed to one particular, you know, intervention or framework, keep the main thing, the main thing. The other piece of advice was don't assume that the sort of particular bubble that you're working in, whether it's like a, you know, a rural school district, urban school district, conservative area, liberal area, wherever you are, don't assume that the fate of the work, and in this case, we're talking about SEL, is going to be determined by your context alone. And so that the language you pick, the ways you frame these things, if you're like a superintendent or a 
Minister of Education, or even just an individual in your classroom, you do need to be thinking about sort of the inferences that people who have a very different life experiences from you, whether it's politically, racially, culturally, may have to something that to you seems so obvious and self-evident. That's obviously, I'm thinking in particular of the Common Core, where, you know, everybody's like, how could we not have this idea of these, you know, research-based national standards? It's going to be great. And then, I mean, it just imploded. And I'm not sure we've actually really drawn enough lessons from that. Like, you know, and so uh, that's often the policy world. Let's pivot then from that to your work on implementation science. And I'm actually going to, in a minute, ask you to just briefly differentiate that term in your mind from another term that's often being used these days of improvement science. Uh, But we won't spend too much time on that because it's way deep in the nerd uh, realm. Before we do that, though, just in in this zone of like trying to not reinvent the wheel, one classroom, one school, one district at a time, which I think a lot of us recognize if we're going to meet the needs of kids, especially in the interest of equity, we've got to find ways to do. The New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote something a few years ago that said, you cannot scale relationships. And I actually, because all of our works on relationships, I thought, hmm, I get the point, but I hope that's not true. So like, what's your reaction to that idea? And it, it was obviously part of a much longer, more thoughtful piece. And so the, that little soundbite is what several years later sticks out in my head. Can you scale relationships or how do you react to his assertion that you can't? Yeah, I mean, I would challenge that on multiple fronts. Once we know something that is needed, that can be effective, that can move the needle on outcomes. Now we got to figure out how do we actually get this to live in real world contexts. And so what are the factors that need to be in place and aligned to be able to translate and get those effective things we've learned through research in place in the natural settings in which kids regularly exist so they can access those daily enriched experiences. And so, you know, I think many implementation scientists would acknowledge on out of one side of their mouth, yes, you know, I get what you're saying about campy scale, but on the other side would say we have a whole science around how to approach this intentionally and that produces usable knowledge on what are the types of policies, procedures and implementation practices that help take something from research and transport it into routine practice in the settings in which kids naturally exist, whether that's inside of school or outside of school. Awesome. Break some of those things down. What are some of the things that implementation science tells us need to happen to take something that has been shown effective in research, whether it's about relationships or about, you know, a math curriculum or about sort of an intervention like small group tutoring or whatever it is that we need to keep in mind as we're trying to, you know, take what worked over here and find a way to have it work over there? Yeah. So we call those things in implementation science. That's a very technical term. I like that. Things. Things are effective solutions that we need to get in place. And a thing could be a policy, a thing could be a, a classroom practice, a thing could be an intervention or a program that has multiple practices that go into it. But what we know is that's an effective thing. And how do we actually get it adopted and utilized? Most implementation science would say it's a process. So you have to understand which stage of the implementation process you're at, because it's going to determine the core activities that must be undertaken in order to set up success for the next. One common framework I use is called the EPIS framework, exploration, preparation, implementation, and sustainment. Each of those are phases to the implementation process. If you don't do exploration really well, you're going to make a rotten selection decision. Even if you implement the thing, it won't move the needle on outcomes. Preparation is all about creating readiness within the organization and among the people who are expected to lead and implement the thing. 80% of implementation failures are due to lack of really intentional readiness work to prepare the system. And then you move into once you have prepared People, now they're going to have to change their behavior because implementation boils down to behavior change. I like to say adult behavior change. Whoever the adults are that are leading and implementing the work, they have to change their behavior in terms of what they say and what they do as it relates to the implementation. And in the implementation phase, the goal is to reach high fidelity. High fidelity just equals kids are receiving the thing in the way that increases the likelihood We'll be able to move the needle on outcomes. And many systems who are even able to reach high fidelity, if they're not intentional, they won't sustain. 
And sustainment is a unique phase of the implementation process unto itself where we have to be intentional about certain supports, strategies that we're using to drive successful implementation or continue and maintain that successful implementation into the future until a kind of a newer thing comes along. So how about the difference between, like, is that maybe I'll take a crack at it and you can correct me. If implementation science is how do we take something that has been shown effective and actually have it, you know, meet the needs of kids in a different setting, different circumstance, but still retain the, you know, effective mechanisms that made the curriculum or the program or the practice effective. Improvement science is more using data to sort of iteratively try and understand and solve problems sort of at the grassroots, as opposed to trying to, you know, replicate an intervention from one place to another. Does that sort of capture the difference between the two? Because I'm in meetings these days where both terms, especially as the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and the Gates Foundation and others have put a lot of resources into sort of improvement science and the, at least I think, older tradition in education of implementation science and the fact that those two words have uh, similar initial, similar letters that start them out in approximately similar number of syllables uh, just makes this kind of confusing. How did I do with differentiating between the two? Yeah, no, I think you've done a good job. And I actually see where there's, like with all things, there's little turfy things that come up. There's so much overlap in terms of what both going after. And so there's actual knowledge we call strategic implementation leadership, where the science of implementation has identified the behaviors of effective leaders And improvement science isn't getting into those types of questions. And you could say it doesn't preclude someone who considers themselves an improvement scientist for doing that, or there's no sanctity in these levels. It's just like, what kind of organizes the work we're doing? I fall under more implementation science because we're actually testing implementation strategies that are agnostic to whatever selected thing that system's trying to continuously improve and get in place. And so that's... I think the two should be married together. It sounds like in certainly in the implementation science side, but also the improvement science side, the relationships among the adults are a key variable. You know, we get asked all the time as our framework at Search Institute for youth adult relationships, which has these five elements, expressing care, challenging growth, providing support, sharing power and expanding possibilities. We get asked all the time by like schools, out of school time people, hey, we like your framework. We're really using it. Maybe we're using your measures, your professional development for our youth adult relationships. Can we use it for the adult relationships? And I would say, well, there's no research on that. And in fact, you know, the developmental relationships framework proceeded from both, you know, analysis of data and qualitative work with diverse groups of kids and adults and then reviews of the research, all with an eye toward youth development. We don't know exactly what adult relationships, like what is the end of those relationships in a school or program. This has actually become a major new forward-looking emphasis for our research because it comes up so much. I'm curious if it's come up for you at all and how you think about the relationships among the adults like in a school. Yeah, so I mean, psychological safety is something that comes out of the implementation science work and how do you promote psychological safety among the people with positions of power and authority who are the ones who are actually delivering the thing or leading the thing. And many organizations you go in, there's not psychological safety and people don't have trusting relationships established. So collaboration around a given thing is unlikely to happen, even if you protect time for collaboration to happen. And so from an implementation standpoint, it's called general climate and then implementation-specific climate. You have to have general climate indicators in place among the adults. Because again, the thing is this kid-facing practices or program that we want to improve their outcomes. So we say, what are the climate indicators of a, a generally healthy environment where people feel like they're valued, respected members of that place? They have healthy social connections. How does that create enablers when you get to the nitty gritty, which is the implementation specific supports, we're asking the adults to engage and interact with, such as training, coaching supports, uh, protected time and professional learning communities to collaborate, reflect on and plan incremental improvements to their delivery of the practices. So, I mean, it's essential and it's elevated. And so we tend to look at it as general stuff. But if you don't also have the implementation specific stuff, you know, being a kind leader where people trust you 
isn't going to drive successful implementation alone. There's actually in implementation specific behaviors that person also has to be engaged with in order to drive successful implementation. And you see a lot of models focusing on general climate indicators, but not the implementation specific. So implementation science says you need them both. One enables the other, but you have to have both to get to successful implementation. Just give us one example of an implementation specific behavior that comes to mind. Yeah. So one, the leader, this is from a leadership because the models say leadership helps create climate. And so you have to start with the leaders and implementation specific leadership behaviors. One being very knowledgeable about the thing in your leadership. Proactive leaders create plans. They anticipate barriers. They talk about those barriers. They troubleshoot those barriers. And it's called proactive uh, implementation leadership. And there's a set of proactive behaviors that leaders who are successful at driving implementation engage in that, that enable implementation to happen in their context with their hmm. people. And so we've developed yep. a measure of strategic implementation leadership where we can create 360 uh, feedback for leaders so they can get feedback and coaching on their leadership behaviors to drive successful implementation. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's really fascinating. One of the things just back to, you know, we talked a little bit about the movement for social emotional learning, and you began talking about the connection in your work between establish, maintain, restore, and equity. One of the other things that has occurred to me and, and also others is that the movement for equity, which has to be about uh, social change and confronting systems of injustice and all the things that are on many of our minds, and it also needs process. <laughs> you don't want to suck the passion out of the equity work, but it does need process, you know, it's the kind of thing you're describing in a sense. So I really appreciate that. A lot of your work has been on children's mental health. And I will tell you over the last year in our work at Search Institute, the degree to which mental health comes up has exploded. It has skyrocketed. And so I'm interested in your thoughts about how schools in particular, but as you know, we work a lot with out-of-school time too, how youth-serving organizations should be thinking about and responding to the growing evidence that many kids have are bringing mental health challenges as a result of the pandemic and struggle for racial justice and many other things, economic freefall that many communities have been. They're bringing those challenges into schools and programs. And so that's a challenge. There's also, I think, an opportunity in the striking number of parents and educators that I'm now seeing saying, we need mental health supports. Like, this is not a fluff thing that we don't need. Like, <laughs> bring in the specialists because, or, or train me. So let's just open the box of mental health work. Um, how are you thinking about that at this really critical uh, moment for our schools and programs? Yeah, I just want to say at the outset, there's the Policy. We need policy that creates the financial realities to enable a lot of our mental health services to happen. But I want to parking lot that because that's such a big conversation. And many times people feel like that's out beyond their control, even though they can advocate, they can vote, we can create coalitions to make those changes, those policy realities happen to enable the types of mental health services. So we actually have true parity between physical health and mental health and enabling people taxes what they need. But we also have inequities. I'm not saying that in our physical medicine, we haven't figured, solved the inequities there. I tend to think about from implementation standpoint, how do we actually get the things in place where they're needed? It requires the workforce to be mental health literate at first. And so mental health literacy is helping people understand what mental health is. What is a mental health distress problem versus a disorder? How do we destigmatize? Because mental health has a lot of stigma. There's ways to destigmatize mental health and then help people understand in their positions what does it look like? What are the signs of someone struggling with a particular mental health problem? And what are the things I have control over that can be supportive of kids who might be struggling? And how do I make referrals to other people? And so that's where it really is about making sure people have that mental health literacy and then understand the practices they can put in place to address kids who are struggling with anxiety, for example, or trauma 
or kids who are struggling with depression? What are the things I have control over that can be supportive, create a healthy context for that individual? And if the kid, how am I aware of how to make referrals to mental health providers? And what are the types of interventions that we can expect to be made available for kids who are struggling with that? And how can I support those types of interventions that are made available? But, you know, it all begins with making sure that people even understand what mental health is from a destigmatized way. And then what's the difference between distress, a mental health problem? Because a lot of people get stressed about stress and then, no, it's, we're not talking about stress. Like you forgot your keys or something, or I'm stressed that we're talking about things that produce impairment in daily life functioning where we don't have to name it. The goal is that there's the, the person is having symptoms, though, that are getting in the way of daily life functioning and it warrants a support. And that support comes from the environments in which the kid's naturally embedded. I do a lot of my work in the area of school mental health. It's the main setting where kids access mental health. But a lot of schools do a crummy job of making available needed mental health intervention. Those interventions are often non-evidence-based. We're often taking kids who have histories of trauma and doing contraindicated things like exclusionary discipline that makes the situation worse. But I'll go back to where I started. It all... Policy and mental health literacy is the starting place to enable kind of true infusion of, uh, you know, mental health supports from kind of a multi-tiered. What what should all kids be getting all the way up to what are some of the interventions and services kids who are struggling need access to? Yeah, I was going to, I mean, I think it does go back to the policy point, which is certainly a good thing to raise here. And I'm not sure exactly what other answer you could give to the dilemma that I'll share. In When schools and out-of-school time programs embrace the idea of developmental relationships, one of the things we have heard again and again is that they start to discover trauma and mental health issues that they might have missed before, or they discover them earlier. And so, of course, part of our response is exactly like you were talking about, you know, that's the time to refer people to um, expertise. And then the very hard thing we frequently hear back is I have no one to refer them to. In my setting, there's no specialists, there's no you know community providers. I'm just a fill in the blank, and they usually do use that I'm just a, a language, which I never like. I'm just a teacher, but I understand that feeling. What do you say to a practitioner who's discovering those issues of mental health or or the related you know experience of trauma who says I don't maybe I just have nobody in my reality, but also maybe what you were saying I know that the approach my school is taking is not effective because I see it doesn't work. Yeah, you know, I tend to put that within a problem-solving model where what we've just identified is a problem that necessitates a solution. So what's at the root cause for why I have no ability to connect the kid to a needed services? And then developing plans to address that barrier that is present within the system, enacting those plans and evaluating whether they worked. We don't often, we're in positions where I don't have control over just snapping my fingers and making those services available, but I do have control over putting any identified barrier or problem within a problem-solving framework and start to generate solutions. So we're actually connecting it with and building healthier partnerships, understanding what services are available within the community because we haven't done that scan before, which people on our payroll in our school are potential mental health providers, although they're not even functioning like that because of their job role description. There's many solutions that can start to surface, even though as a practitioner, I start to feel defeated. And instead of having internal locus of control, I start to have that external locus of control. I think the factors are beyond me. And I start to, I mean, it it stresses people out when they don't think there's a solution they have control over to make something available that does go beyond their control. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. It's really helpful. I'm sure I'll quote you next time I hear that concern. So just kind of as a a way to bring us to a close, and this is, I could keep going, this has been fantastic. Just sticking with that, the national moment and emerging from the pandemic, what do you think, especially as it applies to relationships, what have we learned during the pandemic that we need to keep in mind as we now hopefully uh, emerge from it and, and all the issues that have been exacerbated and exposed due to the pandemic as well? What do we need to remember? You know, a lot of the things we need to remember were things that were important before COVID. And I'm certain you've probably thought about the same thing. This is kind of elevated and heightened issues that are already there. They were latent. Now they're more pronounced. 
And so they seemed really essential. We have to worry about how kids are connected in the degree to which they feel like they belong. That got threatened with everything. And with the social injustices, we realized that due to lived experiences through everything, not all kids are experiencing things similarly. And we have to be really intentional about what are people's lived experiences and what do we need to do to make things just and right for all individuals within the system. People have an elevated awareness of that. Now, we, there's tons of work now, but those things shouldn't phase. They were important before George Floyd and all this series of events that continue to happen around racial injustices that are happening in our country. And then recognition of the mental health piece that we just talked about. People realize that things, when there's uncertainties and adversity, that takes a toll. And what's that take a toll on? People's well-being. It increases more adversity and stress. People are more likely to engage in behaviors that cause impairment in their daily life functioning. If you look at just emergency department visits to, you know, hospitals, not for mental health related concerns, they've increased by 30 to 40 percent for COVID. And for, since 2007 to 2020, before that, it had increased by 100% over that time period. Emergency wow. department visits due to mental health related. And it increased another 30 to 40% during this COVID period. We have a mental health crisis where we need to recognize we have to create the policy realities. And we got to stop building the community-based mental health clinic and expecting people to come to those places. We have to infuse the mental health services into the places where kids naturally show up and exist. That's schools. That's after-school programs. That's in primary care settings. And so those would be the three big takeaways, I think, were important before they were elevated during COVID. And we better stick with them on the back end here as things get back to whatever normalcy. That's fascinating. An unexpected theme for me across this Rooted and Relationships podcast of talking to you and other leading researchers around the idea of relationships has actually been this idea of well-being or wellness, which is not the frame that I went into this with. It was, you know, maybe social emotional learning or those kind of, you know, competencies, but this larger notion of, of making wellness or well-being the broader lens through which we approach our work with kids is a big shift in sort of my thinking as a kind of card-carrying member of the academic outcomes establishment, like let's get all kids college ready. But this broader emphasis on well-being, I think, opens some new possibilities and really gives us kind of an umbrella through which we can be addressing some of the things we're talking about today, not at the expense of academic readiness and success, but as a broader frame for it. So Clay, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It has been fun and enlightening. And if people Google you, they will find that you are involved in many both academic and translational efforts that we didn't have time to talk about, but you're easy to find. And I encourage listeners to seek you out because you are very focused on a lot of the issues whose time is now. So thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Kent Pickell interviewing Clay Cook, the John W. and Nancy E. Payton Faculty Fellow in Child and Adolescent Wellbeing at the University of Minnesota. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with our next episode of Rooted in Relationships. The Rooted in Relationships podcast is made possible by grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen developmental relationships with young people, visit our resources hub at searchinstitute.org.